Welcome to The Bottom of the Glass, a podcast about the art of traditional rudimental drumming and music of all origins. The Bottom of the Glass is hosted by Dave Loyal, Brendan Mason, and me, Brian Watkinson. We'll dig deep into the theories, the ideas, and the history of rudimental drumming, fifing, and world music through the words and experiences of those who are making music history today. Recording in progress. Oh, you beat me. <laughs> I actually look forward to that every time that happens. I, every time now, I, it's in my head, and I'm trying to decide whether I should do it or not. <laughs> I know, I know. I chose not to, but I was thinking about it literally the entire time leading up to that button press. Decisions, I, I, decisions. I actually never think about it until it happens, and then I just, <laughs> it, it slips out. Yeah, Dave just lets it slip. Yeah, um, always, Dave, letting it slip. Don't let it slip, Dave. Please, don't let it slip anymore. Slippery slipper. So this is going to be, whoa, we have a lot of ground to cover. This is a this is a big episode. Um, we have a lot to talk about. This is, we got to talk about Deep River, which is coming up. We have to uh, talk about, you know, uh, a few other things that are uh, in, in the works and in the cooker for Deep River and after Deep River. We had a really, really good interview with John H. Beck and John R. Beck that we kind of have to touch on a little bit. But the coolest thing about this particular episode is that we have a guy on here who is probably the most important part of this podcast, but um, we haven't had him on before. And it's Michael Blancafleur who does all of the editing, all of the production, all of the engineering, all of the stuff to make this to make this podcast work if it does work. And it's you know, we're just like small pawns in this. And he actually uh, makes all this happen. So, Mike, thanks for being here, number one. And thanks for doing all the stuff you do for this podcast, man. Well, thank you for having me, folks. Thank you for having me. And, 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 if you don't, and, and if you don't like uh, the bottom of the glass, he, he does far less than what Brian just said. <laughs> of course, of course. But I, hey, but I'll tell you this, though, uh, you know, like the the F Troop episode that we just did recently, I think the three of us, Dave, Brendan and myself, we kind of across the board said, wow, you know, this episode's really going to suck. But after Michael <laughs> got done with it, it was great, man. It was good. You pulled it all together, Mike, and it, you know, it had to do with how you edited uh, the guests we had and how you edited us and how you, um, you know, produced the music and all that kind of stuff. And it turned out to be an awesome episode. And I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've received more feedback, personal feedback on that episode than I think uh, I have on any other episode we've done. Yeah, and I agree. All of it was pretty good, too. It was all good feedback, except for the people who thought, hey, wait, I had a lot to do with F Troop, too, and you didn't talk to me. I had a couple of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, so, yeah, so cool, Mike. <laughs> Say that again? We even had some Benoits on there, too. Yeah, yeah, we even had Benoits on, which is a miracle, really. So, uh, so Deep River's coming up. What do we think about that? boys and girls well it's coming up and it looks like it's ready not so hot this year yeah it looks like it's gonna rain though at least one of the days right no i don't i don't believe that i have an accuweather app and it's way more accurate than everybody else's weather app (laughs) okay cool (laughs) if you say so then i won't bring my rain slicker what, what, I don't even a, have one of those. What's a rain slicker? It's one of those yellow things. With the yeah, thing. it's like an old, you know. 
You're just trying to reach that that older demographic right yeah, now. Demographic. Oh, <laughs> I got a slicker. It's like Sherlock Holmes, but wet. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, no, I'm looking forward to it. So uh, it's going to be. I'm really looking forward to uh, the Junior Camp performance at the Tattoo on Friday night. That's going to be pretty special uh, with music from John Chalia. I know that they're putting a lot of work into that performance. And this week, you know, the camp goes on and they're going to be working their asses off all week long to pull that together. And I'm looking forward to that in a big way. I think it's going to be great. And Brendan, is this the first time that uh, the Addie's gone to camp? Yeah. 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 My daughter Addie, um, it's her first time and and she's been playing Fife kind of, you know, I guess informally for the last few years. Um, but once we, we asked her if she wanted to go to camp, she like really started to hunker down and practice. She's been practicing four or five times a day, trying to get the music down. And, and it's been awesome. She's improved so much in the last few months, just, just to, you know, eye that carrot, you know, of, of being a part of the, the camp. It's been really, really cool to see. Nice. That's really nice. cool. So, Mike, why don't you tell us, can you give us a little of your background, your fife and drum, musical background, that type of stuff? My fife and drum background, I, I actually have a. It's mainly been through the marching band that I've been in through rudimental drumming. Um, I, I guess I first strapped on a drum in middle school. I mean, mm-hmm. middle most middle schools in, in in the U.S. You have to start doing your parades, so um, do your civic duty. Right. So I kind of, you know, you learn a street beat there and the parade tunes and. I ended up going to UMass Amherst um, and the part of the great use of Japan. Hmm. I guess I'm a 10 year vet of the hurricanes, the Connecticut hurricane. Oh, no. Recording stopped. Did the recording so shocked? Ah, there we go. <laughs> Recording's back in. Recording's back in progress. Are uh, you able to splice those? Yeah, we'll have to. Yeah, we'll, we'll be able to cut those back in. Sweet. Let's go back. How far back do I have to go? Yeah, UMass. I did. Uh, I did a year at Boston Crusaders, and then I marched some hur- hurricanes. Can Hurricanes did some DCA, and then I was a four stint with as percussion captain head of Seventh Regiment. Um, hmm. Hopefully, some direction, um, which was was good. Yeah. Good times. Yeah, that's good. A lot of work. <laughs> which Bre- Brendan Brendan was there for a lot of that. So yeah, so yeah. so um, so. The, w- w- I've, I've seen you at some of the musters as well. Like, so, I mean, like, like, was that your introduction from, from Brennan to, to start uh, kind of exploring the rope drum kind of stuff? I, I know you haven't done much of it, but you have been around it quite a bit. No, no doubt about it. Yeah. Brendan definitely inspired me to check some more out. I mean, when I first met Brendan, it was also when percussive art society started uh, pushing a lot of it at PASICS. I mean, there was a, there's a whole, ancient rudimental concert back in the day if i remember correctly of a whole concert worth of of the history of rudimental percussion and uh 
kind of, I think Brendan and I kind of bonded on on those experiences, on because we were, I think we were both there for that, and we were like, oh, we were both yeah. there for that. So, so, so we were teaching at two different high schools. I was teaching at Cheshire High School, and and Michael was uh, running the Norwich Free Academy program down in Norwich, Connecticut. And uh, we would always hang out. We would have beers after and, you know, do a little bit of the, the hang after. Um, the hang was always good. So. <laughs> the hang was always strong. Yeah. Um, but but uh, eventually he ended up taking uh, over the caption head job at uh, Cheshire High School. And we taught together. So and we taught together for a long time. Mike is, is long, my long mentor. Time. He's my, you know, he's my, my boy. He's one of my best friends. And. Um, been so happy to, to, to be, to have him do so many things. If, if I'm having some sort of a, a professional issue or a teaching issue, he's one of the first people that I call, um, you know, and, and, and ask. Yeah. So to have him on this, this, uh, podcast in, in this capacity was uh, a huge blessing, but Mike also has a background in, the, in many other things. Um, Technologically, you you worked at the Sci-Fi Network for a little while. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, I uh, right after I did my undergrad at the University of Connecticut, proud Husky, go Huskies. Yeah. Hashtag bleed blue. <laughs> um, we uh, after I graduated there, I after that one year at UMass, I did a five-year program, dual degree program, music education at UConn, and um. After I got out of UConn, I, I I moved to um I moved to New York City, right after there. And one uh, a good buddy of mine, Yaram El Dubi, his name was uh he's he still lives in Brooklyn, but uh he kind of got me to move down into the city. I, I got an apartment, moved in with a an old high school buddy of mine. Actually, at the, that time, had a room open in his apartment, hmm. and I I was and asked me if I knew of anybody, and I was like, well. I think I'm your guy. So I ended up moving to the city in December 99 and lived there for a good 10, 10, 11, 12 years, something like that. Yeah. And then it was um, an awesome hang. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was, I adored my time in New York. You know, it's expensive to live there, but if you could deal with the New York grind, I think you could deal with, with a lot of grind. (laughs) It's, It's crazy. I, you know, I lived in New York city for three months Three months before I got, and in those three months, I got hired and fired from a radio traffic job, and uh, and, and it, it was so expensive that you know, like I had to leave the next day after getting fired. <laughs> I left in the middle of the night because I had signed a lease, and I, Holy I left shit. in the middle right, of the night. Right. You would, yeah, so yeah. you would, you would be like. Uh, looks like yeah, yeah. you know the Palisades Parkway. Yeah. You, you did all yeah. of that. That was me. That That's was me. awesome. You were you actually up in the helicopter? No, no, I was. I was in a. I was in a studio with a bunch of other traffic reporters, and uh, it was the it was the easiest job I've ever had. Every half hour, I had to do a one minute traffic report, and I would I would nap in between. I would read a book in between, and then I'd run into all the you know into the you know producer bank and just rip off a a traffic report and read it, and that was it. Now, were you guys like fighting the other traffic reporters for information? Are we all on the same page? Like, oh, yeah, it's a, 
it's a very big deal how they gather traffic in in in, in any market because I did it in Hartford too. But in New York City, it is it's crazy because they pull it off of oh, helicopters, yeah. they pull it off of planes, they have people in cars. They're calling the all of the police precincts and and trying to get information on accidents and every. It's a big deal how it's done. It's pretty it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Is there an official title for that? There, you have like the meteorologist for for the weather. Like yeah, traffic sexy, something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's no, there's nothing. It's so unglamorous. It's like oh, it's traffic a guy, reporter, I think. traffic chick, or whatever. That was traffic it. chick. <laughs> no, no, they call them traffic attendants now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, too good. To, to, to bring it back to the Sci-Fi Channel when I when I finally get <laughs> yeah. to New York. <laughs> And back to my buddy, Yaram, he, he was able to give me a, an interview at the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, and it was, it was for their, their, their new media division, they called it. New media, <laughs> um, which was websites and, and early streaming and early video. Well, so this um, is in 1999? Yeah, 99 to, yeah, 99 yeah, so that was all brand new stuff. Spanking new. All yeah. brand new um, you know, I think I was personally still on a dial-up in New York at the time yeah. before I went broadband. Like, yeah. um, yeah, my first year or two was still on a dial-up. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that um, but yeah. yeah, that's where I learned all the digital skills. And then I, I'd had that job for four or five years. And then, um, I got laid off in, uh, October 04. And right after that, that's when Cheshire called. So yeah. um, I kind of, that's the direction that I went in at that point. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that about you. That's fascinating. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's a you know, building blocks. It's all good. Yeah. So <laughs> d- during your, your time there in Manhattan, even though you, you had that, that sci-fi network job, uh, did you still time, find time for drumming? Did, did, you, did you do gigs? Oh. Did you do like... Drumming. Yeah, I, I hustled. I played with a, a group called the the Greenwich Village Orchestra to keep my orchestral chops up. I played in multiple bands. Uh, my band at the time was called the Earl Scheib Five, which was from Yukon. I played um, the Mallet Cap on it. I played vibraphone in a rock band. Wow. Um, and a lot of different percussion. Um, and that that was a that was one, that's still one of my favorite groups that I played with. Um, I played with a group called Frab. Um, rock and roll outfit played a lot in the village and I, I did a lot of freelance work and through the time I also did a bunch of musical theater stuff um, more in Connecticut because I had some friends who were music directors so I, I started doing a little bit of that and which kind of leads me to today I, I kind of specialize in musical theater uh, percussively and drumming wise I get a lot of work that way so I'm fortunate enough to to have had these experiences nice very cool. Very and cool. and I, I think, you know, one of the coolest things about having Mike on board, and, and if we were more organized, Brian, David, myself, <laughs> we would be able to do a lot more with him. Um, but my favorite times with him and, and, and our podcast is when he gets a chance to do like a recording of something or, uh, you know, like the, the latest one, Liam's Corner. Liam <laughs> came up to me uh, at a parade right after the interview came out and he was like, 
I can't stop singing my song. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's great. It the other day in the shop too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, you know, Sons of well, Flamarkey and all that it, stuff. We, we got to get him on again. <laughs> well, it's funny because I saw, I saw Liam Towers at the, uh, the American Drum Company after the Gatsby Days Parade. And, uh, and he was pumped about it and said, you are the only one that has his own theme song. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> How on earth did that happen? But it did, and I'm happy for him. So it's cool. We're gonna have the, the him little on, challenges. I I, sorry, I think oh. we're gonna have him on again, um, probably after the Deep River Musters. So we can talk to him about his experience again. But sorry, go ahead, Mike. That's good. No, I was saying uh, the all those um all these little challenges of creating all these little tunes is is, is fun. When you guys say, "We oh, we have this segment that we want to do," it's like, all right, let's. It's when you're a creative person, those are always good those are good challenges and it's like maybe or more of a good distraction from regular life that I go, let me jump right into that. I mean, Liam's corner took in Saturday afternoon to record. I mean, your theme song for bottom of the glass is actually, it's, it's Brendan's it's, it's Alex's rhythm for his name. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's how wanna, I wanna, it. yeah, explain that again. I guess that's what's pretty cool. <laughs> Alexander, uh, it's actually, I think it's an 1116 or something like that. And it was all because it's Alexander Patrick Evans Mason. Alexander Patrick Evans Mason. Alexander Patrick Evans Mason. <laughs> so, oh, that's cool. You, next time you hear that, that's and be, and also, I actually. The melody is actually his initials, kind of written out in the alphabet. <laughs> That's so cool. As far as like, yeah, different tones. Yeah. That's awesome. Really cool. So yeah, you got some depth inside your music. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. That's for sure. Well, thanks for doing all that, Michael. That's great. Oh. And we're glad you're a part of it for sure. Um, yeah. So now, uh, Dave, kind of getting back to our Deep River thing. Dave, you're going to be there, I'm assuming, uh, as a performer and as uh, you're going to have, are you going to have a booth there? Are you going to have drums there and, and, and the like? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a weird time in the, in the shop right now where we're, we're expanding in a bunch of different directions all simultaneously. So, um, so it's been, been pretty wild, but, but we are going to be um, officially announcing some, uh, some new, um, new products and, and some things that, that we're just getting a little bit more um, refined, things like the independence model drum. Uh, we're also going to be doing a soft launch of um, some drumsticks. Um, so there it's official. I said it. So now Ooh. I have to do it. <laughs> but, you do uh, have to do it. You are. Committed. Yeah. So, so there, there, there's been a gear up for a lot of this stuff and um, a lot of the people that, that are in the shop um, and that, that come by the shop um, have, you know, been had their hands on on these things for for months, um, as we kind of uh, prototyped, and then you know, it's a kind of a crazy amount of prototyping that we've done. Probably way more than than I've ever heard of anybody else doing. Like several hundred pairs of sticks before we really f finalized exactly what that what one model would be. Um, but um, but yeah, so we're not gonna we're not gonna launch all of them at the same time. We're just gonna do do a couple rudimental models, um, one or two, um, mm -hmm. at the at the muster, and I, I think it's it's gonna be pretty cool. It's a it's a unique concept that I think is is interesting, 
Brennan, you were you were down just um, um, what last week, two weeks ago. Um, we had yeah. a small recording um, project in the shop where um, you know people were playing on the on the Independence model drums and playing with the sticks. I think I did about thirty different tracks. Yeah. So I did enough recording for a very long time, um, and there's video of it uh, that hopefully doesn't show the sweat just drenching. From every part of my body, it was so uh, hot in there, and it was. Just, it was like yeah. it's a cool day. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, well, I don't I, give a shit. It's really, really, really hot. It makes me feel so good that 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 you see how hot it is on a on a daily basis. There is air conditioning in part of the shop, but not the parts that I'm in. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you want to talk any more specifics about the drumsticks, but uh, they feel really good. Um, and and um, you know some of the stuff, the Independence model drums are are. I mean, it's just a, a beautiful drum, and um, I, I think the idea is is to try to get these things out there in, in as many hands as, as possible. Um, but, and, and that's that's the idea of the of the Independence model drum. It, it's uh, we joke about it as kind of the Model T of, of drums, where we've taken all the performance aspects that that you're looking for in a drum. And we we've kind of brought it down to bare bare bones, you know, like the the custom drums, you know, they're almost entirely hand built, where every part of it is is handmade. Um, but for the independence model drums, we're using things like like uh, Nordic ply shells um, and then composite materials um, that are just incredibly durable. You know, you you want you want a dishwasher safe drum. This is it. Um, mm -hmm. But it has all the same sound characteristics as oh. as as a custom instrument. Um, at a, a very reasonable price point, I think. So um, it's been so, kind of a challenge. From, from my perspective? Piece. Yeah. From from the outsider's perspective, from the percussionist perspective, I think that's a wonderful idea. And I, I think I've, were these some, the same drums that you've had at PASICs, uh, last couple of PASICs that you're kind of experimenting with a little bit? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like everything is, yeah. is, is finalized now. The, the the hoops are polymer, so you can't dent them with a drumstick, you know, like you, you don't need rim guards. You don't need, you could play right on them. You know, uh, we we joked about having signs on the drums at PASIC that says uh, rim shots, please, because a lot of the, the demo drums say no rim shots, please. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we've broken drumsticks trying to dent the hoops. Um, but you know, I mean, the performance is there. Brendan got to play one and you, you brought one home with you, Brendan too. Yeah. 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 I actually, I have the USAR drum here still too. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm still waiting to give it to the guy. Uh, he lives out in California. Um, but that's a whole other thing, but, uh, yeah, no, the drum is, is absolutely fantastic. And, and got kind of just, uh, expanding upon the, you know, getting a drum in, in as many people's hands as, as possible, uh, there's some really great work behind the scenes uh, to, to be able to push these drums out to universities in a very uh, easy manner, um, mm -hmm. very inexpensive manner. Uh, and, and, and a lot of the, the work that has to be put into getting some of this funding, uh, Loyal Drums is, is doing a lot of that work for these, these places. I don't know if you want to expand upon that. Yeah, so um, so we actually have a grant writing program that we're doing for um, for nonprofits and for for schools and things like that, um, where we're actually um, taking all that uh, that difficult work. That's uh, you know, if you're not, there are people who write lots of grants, and then there's people who who are are you know 
who have never kind of broken into it. And there's, there's and two people, two types of people in this world. There's grant writers and people that don't write grants. Is that what you're <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, <laughs> there's people named Grant and then uh, people named uh, something else. Writer, uh, writer, yeah. yeah, writer, writer. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so, so we, we, we've taken that on um, and we've, we've used it successfully with, uh, with, um, you know, a handful of schools already. Um, we, we did kind of a soft launch of that at PASIC, um, and it's been, it's been really successful. So it's, it's a win-win, you know, you, you get quality instruments, um, and you don't even need to pay for them necessarily. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, leveraging all the, all the different arts grants that are out there, um, to, you know, preserve this piece of American. Which, which is really interesting because we happen to have on, uh, Michael Blankafor who works with a university in Connecticut. Yeah. So, so if I can broker this too, that's uh, what's the commission on that one, Dave? Uh, uh, oh yeah, it's um, millions of uh, <laughs> of, of, of something. <laughs> million rubles. <laughs> <laughs> rubles. We just have to wait a few months and see see where the value is on that. <laughs> so, can you can you talk? Are you uh, are you at a point now where you can talk about uh, a price point on these on these drums, or is that not yeah. yet? Yeah, so so the uh, drum is is under a thousand bucks. It's 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 right yeah. at about a thousand bucks for the for the instrument. Um, but with that, you're getting the the custom crimp locked um, heads. You're getting the Kevlar core rope. You're getting the the multi gut um, system with the um, the custom cables and the very high quality bow brand um, gut, which is the the best gut in the world. We imported from the UK. Um, you know, so, so you get all of the, all the same features that you would on any other drum. We're not cheaping out on drum heads. We're not cheaping out on, on anything. Um, you know, really the, the cost savings is coming down to, um, labor things. Um, Mm. so the, like the, the hoops, I mentioned that that they were a high strength polymer. Um, we're not talking ABS plastic here. We're talking like it's a, it's, it's a, it's called super tough nylon, um, uh, hybrid or something like that. Um, but you know, it, it's solid color throughout. So the, the model T joke, you know, uh, you can have any color as long as it's black. That's pretty much holds true for this. Um, yeah. cause you know, we, we, we designed it, we, we own the mold. Um, we invested in the mold and our minimum order is a thousand parts, um, from the, the injection molding company. So, which is about a small apartment worth of hoops, uh, right. you know, which is, so, I mean, it's something that, um, that I've been very excited about over, you know, decades. I mean, I, like we came up with this idea of a way back when, um, but you know, to be able to, to, to really get it out there is, is exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. I'm excited for you, man. And, and just you. think, like, you know, the, the, you've just launched so many things in the last year, the drum pad, um, the quantum head, uh, which, which has the, the, the durability of, of a Kevlar head, um, and the crispness of, of a Kevlar head, but it feels like a, like a calfskin. It's got that nice open bounciness to it. It's, it's a fantastic head. Um, so far I'm the only one that has broken, uh, one, but, uh, they, I yeah. love them. I absolutely. I think your brother them. broke one too, but, uh, <laughs> no, no, no telling what, what the, the heads on his sticks look like. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the 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 quantum head is uh is 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 really interesting. I mean, it's it's probably not as durable as the um as the um like the 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 Kevlar's, but the sound quality and the feel of it are just absolutely incredible. So, I mean, I, I would certainly put them up against um like the Remo Kevlar's that we had sold for a long time. I think they're more durable than than those heads. 
you know, the, oh, yeah. the, the Kevlars that, that we're making and the, and the Swiss Kevlars, um, you know, those, those, it, it's a much denser, um, weave of the material. Like the, the fibers within quant, the quantum head are actually stronger than Kevlar. Um, but you know, we're opting for a, a, a very responsive head. So we wanted it to be, um, a little bit thinner and, and yeah, I mean, they're, they're durable and, um, and they, I think they sound great. And I can tell, I can tell that other people, um, think that it feels like calfskin, but I'm not ready to say that myself. Cause I know that everybody's going to jump down my throat as soon as yeah, I say yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the calfskin lovers out there. Yeah, which I I love calfskin, but I, you know I love playing on these as well. Like it, it does have that. Uh, like one of the the main benefits um, for us, and I don't want to talk about too much that we have. We still have a lot of stuff to do, um, but um, one of the really nice things is that um, it doesn't uh, have the shock going up into your your elbows and in, into your arms. So the longevity for for a drummer to uh, you can play for hours on these on these heads and 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 not not feel those types of issues. And more importantly, Peta has been uh, harassing you way less and less. Peta. Peta. <laughs> so so the the, the next thing um, you know after Deep River is uh, our second annual trip up to York, Maine to invade Brian's land. Uh, we did it last year. Uh, we had a really good time. We stayed all in a house together. Brian came over one of the nights and we did something. I don't remember what we did, but we, we did something that wasn't an episode. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember it either. Oh, you I know what? Was, the, the main thing is that night, we, it was right? a lobster night, but, but, but the main thing that we did during that week was we went down to the wayside Inn and interviewed Paul Cormier. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that, that's how we were able to do that. We, we all carpooled together down there. Um, so you know, we got a couple things uh, looking forward to that. We're going to try to put an episode together. Um, you know, one of the ideas that we had was was talking about a, a pretty important issue in fife and drum, and it's something um, that I don't think really is talked about too much. And 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 we kind of see an opportunity there to to have a really good discussion about sobriety in fife and drum corps, and um, you know how. Um, you know, different people have grown up in Fife and Drum Corps and they've been around it and, and drinking has always been sort of a, a cornerstone, particularly back in the 60s and 70s and how it's sort of evolved to today. And 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 for those that are still trying to do Fife and Drum Corps and still enjoying Fife and Drum Corps while living a sober life. Um, so I, it's, it's something that I think is going to be a really cool thing to talk about. Yeah, I, I, I'm really excited for that episode. I know that there's... Uh... There's there's more people than you think um, than than I thought anyway. I, I I've been sober for for two years now, and uh, you know I'm I'm kind of surprised at 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 how many people don't don't actually drink at musters because you know that's the way that I grew up with with musters was you know that's part of it. It's it's inseparable from from the community, but but it's really not, and it doesn't need to be. It does not need to be, you know, recently, and we'll talk about this more when we actually do this episode, but, you know, there was the clean and serene jam that happened uh, several months ago down at the company hall, and it was very well attended, and it was very well received, and it was uh, an opportunity for a lot of people, and there were a lot of people there, a lot of people to get together and not have any association with alcohol at all at a fife and drum event, you know, and it's kind of to prove the point that, you know, this can be done without it. 
you know, and, and, and enjoyed like, like anything else. And it's, it's kind of weird. And we were just talking about it before we started the recording, but when I began in fife and drum and I began in a senior corps as a young teen, and it was okay for me to drink when I was in the senior corps, because it was just part of the fife and drum culture in, uh, to some level. And then when I joined a junior corps and I was still not of age to drink, that's when it was taboo. And it was kind of weird, you know, it was kind of a weird transition to go from one core where it was like, oh, okay, well, we'll just turn, you know, and look the other way to, hey, look, if we catch you doing this, you're out, you know, that type of thing. So it's certainly something that's in the culture. Uh, and we ought to talk about it because like you said, Dave, there's a lot of people that, you know, uh, do not want anything to do with it while they're enjoying fife and drum, which is great. Well, yeah, and I think that for some people, you know, they they can't imagine fife and drum without it, or they they can't imagine um, it without fife and drum. I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. sense. <laughs> Maybe not. No, no. Um, but so, like, they, they they can't imagine going to one to to a muster. Like, oh well, you know, like I I I don't want to work on on you know cutting back or or quitting drinking because it's so ingrained in this other, um, you know, this language of music that I speak with these people and, and this community, um, of music. But, you know, I mean, they are two separate things that, that, that musical language and, and the drinking are, are, you know, the, you are able to, to, to enjoy, enjoy your time at a muster and, and stuff like that and be around it. Maybe, maybe you can't be around it. Maybe you don't want to be around it for a while. You know, maybe you need to take a break from, from fife and drum to really, um, you know, find that, that, um, place where you, where you're comfortable and everything, but you know, that there are more people that, than you would expect that, that are, um, that don't drink at Monsters. So. And, and, and before we record that episode, um, if anybody, any of our listeners would like to send us a, a DM, uh, or a private message, uh, uh, explaining their experiences or something they'd like to contribute to the episode, we will certainly add that into the discussion. So uh, mm. definitely reach out on our Instagram page and our Facebook page. For sure. But the, the main reason why we're here is we interviewed two very important people in the percussion world. We did. The Becks. The Becks. John H. Beck and and John Arbeck, uh, and that's uh, father and son, and they both at different times in their drumming careers um, played for with the um, Marine Band, which is a very historic band, obviously, and uh, a very important band. But they've done both of them have done so much in the world of percussion over decades that it's a it's a pretty important discussion, and there's a there's a lot uncovered uh, during it that's um, Really cool and and very very interesting. That that was fun. So that's going to be good. Yeah, and, and so for for our fife and drum listeners, um, you know, John John actually um, John Arbeck came to Deep River, um, Deep River or Westbrook. I, I can never remember which. Um, Deep River, yeah. A few years ago, yeah. Um, to um, do some work for the Rhythm Discovery Center, which he also um, I guess founded or co-founded. Um, in Indianapolis, a museum of, of all different types of percussion and, and their uses like, you know, around the world. But um, he did he did some filming of um, of what Fife and Drum was to, to, from kind of a 
um, musical anthropological expect. Oh, that's good, Dave. Is that is that? No, I think you nailed that. Yeah, baby. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he dug them up. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, um, but um, but well, it is ancient music, which according to Webster is uh, the very distant past and no longer in existence. So you know, I mean, just, <laughs> wow. Um, no, but um, but yeah. So I mean, so so he's he's certainly been around it. He he has some rope drums, um, some historic ones. I think he had a. He, uh, th- they both had a, um, a a reamer drum behind them when they were um, that they had made back in the eighties. Um, the Bill Reamer. Um, he that, called me up after he, he said that they put them there to mock you. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've also built drums for him, but I don't know. So, um, but yeah, it was super cool. Like they're, they're, they're really cool guys. Uh, you know, we've hung out with them, um, at PASIC and, and at different places for, you know, for years, just, you know, so it was, it was really great to, um, to get some more insight into what makes them tick. All right, guys. Well, let's get to the interview. All right.
Okay, so I'm sorry if this introduction sounds a little bit like a riddle, but uh, here we go. We're going to have a lively, intensely informative discussion with two extremely well-regarded clinicians, instructors, performers, and conductors in the world of percussion. Between the two of them, they have performed with the Rochester Philharmonic, the Eastman Winged Ensemble, the Philharmonic Orchestra, the Syracuse Wind Ensemble, the Greensboro Symphony, the Brass Band of Battle Creek, and the Philidor Percussion Group. Shall I go on? I think I will. The National and Baltimore Symphonies, the Washington and Baltimore Operas, the Theater Chamber Players of the Kennedy Center, the New Sousa Band, the Chautauqua Band, the Rochester Chamber Orchestra, the Corning Symphony, the Memphis State Wind Ensemble, the Pennsylvania Festival Band, the Philharmonia Pomorska in Poland. They have been members of the prestigious United States Marine Band, although at different times. And between the two, they have been professors of percussion at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts and Wake Forest University. One of these gents is the past president of the Percussive Arts Society. One is a professor emeritus of percussion at the Eastman School of Music. They have held clinics, they have conducted orchestras, they have taught and instructed students of percussion all over the world. I've lumped these two gentlemen together in this introduction because they have the same name. Their father and son, John H. Beck, who we're going to refer to as JB, and John R. Beck, who we're going to refer to as JR, are two extremely important people in the world of percussive arts. And we're happy to have them both with us today. Mr. and Mr. Beck, thank you very much for being here. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's good to be here. Excellent. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that that's, uh, that's probably the uh, most extensive intro <laughs> that, that, that we've ever, ever had, had to do on this, uh, on this podcast. I mean, you, you guys have an incredible amount of experience. Um, and it's, so it's hard to unpack a combined total, if my, if my drummer math is correct, 225 years between the two of you of experience between, uh, between you. But percussion seems to run in your blood. Is it just you two, or does that lineage go farther back um and is it going forward you want to take that one is it in our blood <laughs> question yeah yes that's it, it it here's how it started for me in an unusual way in 2023 but in 19 43 when i was 10 years old i started to play a snare drum that I I didn't even know how to play it, but the guy down the street, he painted houses for a living. He played snare drum in the fife and drum corps in the local town. And when an opening came up for uh, the band director at the, at the high school in, in the band uh, the school, uh, just said, we need people to play. So I chose, uh, I looked at a clarinet and I saw what needed to be done with a clarinet and I thought, no, that's too complicated. I need something a little simpler than that. So I decided here was a, a, someone who could teach me how to play the center drum. He lived four houses away from us in the same street. 
So I studied with him. And the first lesson, he taught me how to hold the sticks. The second lesson was how to put a skinhead onto a flesh hoop. Because his theory was, if you play drums and you break the head, you have to know how to put a new head on. And mm. the third lesson was how to read music. So that's one, two, three lessons. And then it went on and he taught me 13 lessons and finally said, John, I don't know anymore. You're going to have to find someone who knows how to play the drums that can teach you. <laughs> so my father and I went, looked around in different places around uh, central Pennsylvania, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. There's a Bucknell University in Lewisburg. And there's an Eastern Federal Penitentiary. So if you screw up in one, you can go to the other, I guess. <laughs> in any case, uh, we found in, in a town called Sunbury, Pennsylvania, we, we found a drummer that had a sign outside that said drum lessons and tap dancing lessons. Because in those days, you guys are too, too young to know this, but I knew a lot of drummers were tap dancers lessons, uh, tap dancers. So... I went to him, took a few lessons, and realized somehow instinctively, I don't know how, but I figured he was a better tap dancer than a drummer. So I told him I couldn't take lessons any longer. I had a paper route, and it interfered with my drum lesson. But then we found another drummer in another town. He was a band director, but he knew the rudiments. So I studied with him. Finally, I ended up, I ended up doing something that's unusual in today's uh, travel, well, maybe not, but I found in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was 250 miles away from my hometown, I found a teacher by the name of Bart Harvard who had a drum shop called Arch Drum Shop. And so uh, my parents took me there. We talked to Art. He said, sure, I'll teach you, but you can't come every week. That's 200. You can't get on a bus and drive 250 miles to communicate <laughs> every week. So uh, what we did was work it out with the, the high school band director who happened to be the principal of the school at the same time. I said, I need to take off a week and take lessons in Pittsburgh with Arts at Arts Drum Shop. And, and I convinced him that the better I got, the better his drum section would get in the band. And I, he bought into that and I did it four years. So that's how I, I started playing, which is really not, the way I got into Eastman when I finally auditioned for Eastman. But I think that's enough. That's how I got started. And then it went all until I graduated from high school. And then another yeah. and maybe JR has something he'd like to tell you at this point. Well, so uh, can, can, can I first ask just, just one more little small follow-up? Uh, so so were there other musicians in your family at that time? Or, or um, was, was it well, you were just completely? My father played trumpet. Okay. And my mother played piano. She played two tunes. Silent Night was one of them, and I can't remember the other one. That was the extent of her playing. But she loved to play the piano or make sounds on it. My father played the trumpet. He was not necessarily a, a, a Harry James or anyone like that. But uh, he played and he enjoyed playing. So that's the extent of music in my family. Excellent. That's very interesting. You know, it's 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 funny how um, so I'm I'm from a musical family and and my father was in my father was in fife and drum uh, and he was a, he was a fifer and but he played 
he played in a band as well. He played in a swing band. He played he played saxophone and clarinet uh, in a little swing band. And and it's it's the basis of everything. And I remember him telling me that, look, if you can play the piano and if you can play a string bass, this is, you know, in the in the big band days, you will never, ever be out of work. You know, that was like that was the mentality of post depression work, you know, like if you if you had a skill as a musician, you would always find work if you were good at it, you know, and I think that just kind of then rolls into, you know, I mean, your family was musical and it moved to you and then it moved to you, Jr. So where in the evolution evolution of it all, Jr. did you like get into music and start being a uh, getting into percussion. Well, you know, obviously we had a house full of drums and a house full of drummers um, with his job at Eastman. It was like a who's who coming to dinner and um, you know, the students were coming to the house for picnics. And so I was immersed in that world. Um, we started uh, band class in elementary school um, back in the late 60s. And before I could choose an instrument, my parents said, you have to do two years of piano then you can choose a band instrument. Um, and so I chose drums because, you know, it's obviously what dad did. Um, I had two lessons with him. They both ended in tears. It was a- <laughs> <laughs> so he said, if you want to keep playing, you could study in school. Um, and I wound up studying the Eastman Community Music Program, uh, studying with his grad students, actually, mm-hmm. until my last two years. And then Ruth Kahn was my teacher. Um, but I had the benefit of literally having a basement full of really great instruments. And he was wise enough after those two lessons to never bug me in the basement. I'm sure I played things that made him cringe, but he <laughs> never came downstairs unless I asked a question, which I'm grateful for. <laughs> he just allowed me to explore and grow on my own. That's fantastic. So, so JB, I, I think this kind of covers for Dave and myself. We both have... Um, kids that are growing up inside of the the percussion world, if you will. Um, you know, my three-year-old son has been consumed with all things percussion, you know, since before he was born. So at, at what point did you notice that that uh, JR kind of had an affinity for music? And, um, you know, did you ever try to steer him clear of, of going down this, this pathway now knowing, you know, what it is like now and not what it was before? Well... It was, I knew he had talent. I I could tell he had talent and I knew that the father was not necessarily the best teacher for him because if I said, no, that's not the way you do it, it, he thought I was disciplining him and I I was not doing that. I was just trying to help him. So I did my best to uh, encourage him to study with the other students uh, of mine, my grad students at Eastman and they, uh, it worked out so, but uh, all all through high school, when I for me uh, I was playing gigs every weekend, every Friday and Saturday night I was either in the Moose Club and Elks Club or Legion or somewhere playing, and uh, there was I learned through the weeks that I used to do in Pittsburgh when I go and study for a week I'd hang out at the drum shop. I not only learned how to play the drums, but I learned how to hang out with drummers. I learned to talk to drummers. I knew what they felt like and when they played and, and why they did what they did. 
So I learned the business of drumming at the same time that I was learning how to be a better drummer. And I tried to encourage uh, John, J.R., to uh, continue along with that same attitude. It, it, as you guys all know, you're all professionals, and playing the instrument well is one thing. But being able to play the instrument and hang out with others who are playing the same instrument and so on, it's another experience that you have to learn. You have to learn how to hang and not be conceited and say, look, I play faster than you. No, that's nonsense. I always told my students at Eastman, don't try to play like someone else. Try to play better that you play yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't copy. Don't clone. I never believed in cloning. I know a lot of teachers who clone their students, and they must do exactly what the teacher said. That's not true. That's not the way it works. Everybody has a personality. Everyone has a talent, and they should explore that talent and make that talent their quest in life, their say contribution to music. Not like someone else. Well, I'm doing what someone else did. That's not important. Be yourself. That's the big thing.
Yeah. So um, on, on the subject of Eastman, um, uh, a lot of the, the the Marine Band guys will come down and and, um, and visit the shop or come and hang. Um, a few of them actually come down several times a month um, to to hang at the shop. So it's really cool to to get to to um, have that kind of camaraderie that you're talking about, where you know drummers hanging out and talking about sometimes everything other than drumming. <laughs> but um, I've noticed kind of kind of a link. Um, there's kind of a link between Eastman and the Marine Band. Um, and with a lot of the players um, from Eastman going going to the Marine Band. Um, and so is, is that link something that that's existed for a long time or or does that does that have to do with with uh, with your teaching and, and, and the style um, of how you bring drummers um, and percussionists rather um, to strengthen them to kind of fit into that type of role? Now, I missed the middle part. You, you dropped out just a little bit on the Zoom, but Dave's asking about the the large number of Eastman grads, grads. who are in the band. Yeah. Is that a tradition? Um, it actually goes back to Ali Zinsmeister and you. Right? Well, my entrance in, into the Marine Band, here's a story. It's, it's, it's really talking about being in the right place at the right time. In 1938, the first percussion graduate graduate of Eastman was Ali Zinsmeister. So in 1935, he went into the Marine Band, and then it was a 20-year commitment. So in 1955, Ali Zinsmeister was ready to get out of the Marine Band. And in 1959, I was graduating from the Eastman School of Music. And at the time, there was a draft. So my, regardless of what I was studying or doing in college, I had to service. I had to go in the service. That was what every 18-year-old had to do. You had to serve your country. Well, fortunately, the opening at the East in the uh, Marine Band with Ali Zinsmeister in 1955 opened up a, a door for me. I took the audition. I made the audition. And in 1955 to 1959, I did the Marine Band. And in 19... <laughs> 55, my teacher, William Street at the Eastman School of Music was retiring from his job as timpanist with the uh, Rochester Philharmonic. So that opened up another door for me. I took that audition. I got into the Rochester Philharmonic. And at the same time, he was cutting back on his teaching at Eastman. So he said, would you like to be my assistant? I said, yes. And so he retired. I retired, I took his place, he retired, and then I took his place again. So there were two separate times, one as a player and one as a teacher. And in 1959, I started teaching at the, at the Eastman School, and in 2008, I retired from Eastman, 49 years later, and it was, it's been a good ride, guys, let me tell you, because I always wanted to be a drum set player. I wanted to play with Count Basie. I wanted to play with the, with Harry James and, and Benny Goodman and all the band. But I saw that there were other names out there that I hadn't been familiar with, like Beethoven, Brahms, Mozart, Tchaikovsky, and so on. So when I got to the Eastman School and I started hearing all of these and getting the feeling of what classical music is like, I could see, and also it was the time 
when the big band era was starting to fail, was going the other way. So by not insisting that I become a drum set player, I would have had a short career because the big bands were going. I then decided I want to go the other way. And so I got I get into the uh, classical playing, never regretted it. The last thing I ever thought I'd ever be in this world, guys, and this is an honest truth. This is not something I made up. I never thought I would be a tippetist in a symphony orchestra for a career. But the door opened. I practiced my rear end off, and I became the tippetist for 49 years in the Rochester Philharmonic. And I ended my career as tympanist in the Rochester Philharmonic with Mahler Five, and there's a uh, solo at the end. Bum, yeah. bum, 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 bum. It's not a solo, but the conductor at the time was Christopher Seaman, and he was the he was our conductor in Rochester. He also was the tympanist in his career, and when we hit to that end at my last concert. I said, I'm going for it. And I <laughs> and he just looked at me and smiled and said, and like, okay, JB, it's your turn. You can do it. You're done now. And it was fun. It was really the best way I could ever think of getting out of playing in a symphony orchestra. And, and how long ago was that? Pardon? How long ago was that? That was in 2008. That's great. That's great. Wow. And, and then there's something I always wanted to do my whole life is teaching and playing because I always wanted to do jazz. I love jazz playing. And, and so I always wanted to give talk about the history of percussion. And when I got out in 2008, I talked to school. I guess I talked to school into giving me an emeritus position as a emeritus professor of percussion. And they gave me the opportunity to teach for eight years the history of percussion. So I developed a curriculum and uh, it's it was great fun for me. I still have the uh, curriculum around. So if you guys want a curriculum, just let me know. I'll send you a copy. <laughs> I, I would actually, I would love yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, Brenda would love that for sure. It was really a lot of fun. That's that's my pipeline right there. That would be, yeah. that'd be really cool to see that. In, in his answer, he kind of touched on your question, Dave, about I'm sorry, one, Dave. You know, one door opening and being ready to walk through. You know, sure. The Eastman percussion philosophy was be able to do everything, be able to yeah. say yes to any job. And I think because he was in the Marine Band, when openings came along, even though most of the players wanted to be symphonic players or percussion soloists, it's like, all right, JB did it. He turned out okay. I, maybe I'll take a chance on a military band even though I don't know much about it, um, that was my position. I had one job in West Texas, in Midland, Odessa, and I was going to be moving in a couple weeks. But I took the Marine Band audition and was offered the position. I thought, you know, Midland, Odessa, teaching 60 students a week, playing an original orchestra or this Marine Band thing, I'm going to do the military thing. That sounds way more exciting. And because he had done it, I knew a little bit about it. And so sure. I think it's that kind of, all right, well, one Beck did it, the other Beck did it, these other Eastman grads did it. Yeah, this is definitely something worth looking into.
when I was in the band, it was post-Vietnam, so about half the guys in the band got in to get out of going overseas. Mm-hmm. Other half were people like me who were right out of school that were looking for a first job, and and it was kind of an interesting dynamic. When I heard the band 10 years after I got out and listened to the level of playing, I was like, I could never win this job against these <laughs> And that's true for all the service bands. They're just killer players now. We, we know we know a lot of the former members of the old guard that come back from the 60s and 70s, and you would look at them and never, ever, ever think that they are military whatsoever. <laughs> and, and I think they would be the first to tell you that uh, the old guard and the West Point Hellcats are a completely different group than they were back in the you know 60s and the 70s. Yeah. Well, yeah, and uh, I mean, groups like the, like the Army Band as as well as the Marine Band. I mean, these days, the people winning the jobs, some of them have have done you know thirty auditions um, before before land landing a gig like that. So, I mean, the the amount of competition is just incredible to get to get into those the special bands. Yeah, it sure is. You know, it's funny. We uh, a little while ago, as part of the to to help. Uh, people who were auditioning for the old guard, we did a podcast with first the Fifers, you know, the, the Fife audition team with the old guard and then the drum audition team with the old guard. And it is, it is a process, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a tough deal to get from point A to B, C, D and E to actually get into that Fifer, that drum line. Um, It's tough and you really have to go through it. And uh, so I understand exactly what you're saying about things are different now than they were then in like all 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 of those bands. But getting back to the Marine Band. So so the Marine Band is, you know, one of the iconic you know bands of all time. Right. So, I mean, with huge history and, and huge heritage and John Philip Sousa and all that. So can you, and you both were in this band, can you each tell us about your experiences, where you went, how it felt, what did it feel like to nail a performance? Um, all of those different experiences. Let's, let's start with you, JB. What did, it, what did it feel like when you were in the Marine Band and just killing it? Well, it was an experience that uh, I'm some of the things I might say in the next few minutes may have turned you on, maybe not, but uh, why did I get into the Marine Band? One was an opening, Ali Zinsmeister, Eastman student, was graduating, proud of the band, retiring. Okay, I had to go into the service, and 15 of us from the Eastman School of Music in 1959, 1958, in that era period, there were, we all got into the Marine Band because hmm. we didn't want to go into the service. And here was another incentive. This is the one that may turn you off. I don't know. At will, a real diehard military person, there was no basic training to get into the Marine <laughs> Band. Oh, I get that. I understand that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I know basic training, but after after playing paradiddles for four years and then have to win and pick up a rifle, I never think that wasn't for me. But the <laughs> band was for me, and I really enjoyed it. Now, here's another thing about the Marine Band that uh, John didn't experience as much as I did, but there were tours. The, the philosophy of the leader of the Marine Band was every member of the Marine Band 
has to be a soloist. And we did a tour every year, the four years I was in, and they were nine-week tours. There were nine weeks on a Greyhound bus. There was a new town every day, and you were a soloist. At least I played marimba solos for that. So nine weeks, a lot of uh, running around at night. There was a lot of beer drinking. But the one thing, there were no bathrooms on those buses back then in uh, that period. So what do the guys have to do after a whole night of beer drinking? <laughs> they needed a Coke bottle somewhere handy. And it, it's an experience that that I didn't, it didn't bother me, but it did bother a couple of, of my colleagues who didn't ever, who had never experienced anything except the practice room, playing their instrument by themselves. Then they're now they're put on this bus, which guys, you know, there were about 40 Marines on a bus. The language you've got to imagine was not. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it was an experience that didn't bother me because I had been part of it. I, when I was about 15 years old, I played in a band. It was a quintet. And it was usually when you played gigs in those days, the gigs started at 10, then you had 10, 11, 12, 1. You were usually done by 2 in the morning. And there was a lot of drinking, an awful lot of drinking. The first set was great. The second set was a little bit, kind of good. The third set was really kind of bad. And the fourth set was embarrassing. So, <laughs> man. <laughs> And the band, but but the one exception, one sacrifice, was say saving grace was the fact that everyone else in the club was also drinking. <laughs> they thought they were great. I didn't because I wasn't drinking. I didn't drink. I couldn't drink. My father said, "Look, you're you're 15 years old. You're you're too young to drink." The only thing I learned to do was smoke a little bit, a cigarette once in a while, yeah. to be one of the guys. So uh, the band that used to be called the Bob Clements Quintet started to be called, within us, it was the Four Alcoholics and Beck. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so I had all this kind of uh, battle, battle fatigue coming from that type of uh, things that I did when, in high school. So the Marine Band, to me, was one thing. It was the greatest musical experience. Sometimes they called it the machine band because they played so many notes, but those notes were always very well done. And the tours were tough. The tours kind of started on a level. And then as we got into the maybe the fifth week, it was really up at a high. And then the band in the last was sort of down. So in the last couple of Concerts we play, we made started little funny jokes, but that was how we didn't go crazy sitting right. on buses. Right, just to get through it. It's like with the band, the Marine Band, I still think is the greatest concert band going right now. If there's anyone out there who's in another band, there's the Air Force, <laughs> Army, Navy, so you guys are also good, but the Marine Band. They were there for one reason, and that was to play music as well as they could. Yeah, yeah, cool. How my, was it for you, Jr.? 
my experience was a little bit different. Um, there were no women in the band when JB was there, and the section was smaller, four or five. I was yeah. part of a nine and ten member section. So our tours were seven weeks, not nine weeks, still 49 shows in a row. Uh, it's different now. They do much more reasonable tours. Um, I also had the opportunity to be a tour soloist, but just on one tour. So in my four years, I only toured once. I think JB toured every year. Mm -hmm. And um, there were women in the band starting in the early 70s. So the language was better. The behavior was a little better, <laughs> a little more civilized. Um, but I would agree with him that being on that band bus, not the literal bus, but the ride of the musical bus, was just hang on for dear life because they're take no prisoners playing. Um, we both had the opportunity to play in a reunion band uh, about 15 years ago or so together. Mm. Reunion band, which is really fun. Yeah. Uh, I went back last year and did it again. And I can tell you that all the anxiety I had as a 22 year old, not wanting to screw up, came back as a 62 year old. <laughs> all that same paranoia. And you know, all of us that came back said, yeah, it's just like we were in the band 30, 40 years ago. All that same anxiety about getting yelled at by the colonel. You know, it's all still there. Wow. But it was, you know, and still is you know, an amazing band of musicians. Um, just note accuracy is just a given. And it's all about making music. And it's, you know... Yeah, it's, another perk that you have in, in the Marine Band and other bands at D.C. is that you played in the White House. Mm -hmm. People, well, I played in the White House. But well, when I started beating a drum, I never knew it would take me. But I'd say, yeah, it's taking me to the White House. And they, yeah, well, who was the president? And I'd say, Dwight Eisenhower. They said, who? I, said, <laughs> I never met him. I did play fluffles, ruffles and flourishes for him once in a while. But... uh a funny story. The first White House job that I played was I was in the band for for about three weeks, and they don't they, they didn't give me much instruction except to play the music. But now I'm in the White House playing what would be a a small chamber group. As the dignitaries walked in the front door, we'd play da 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 da, da little easy classical music, and then. The trumpet player was sitting on my left. I had a snare drum and a cymbal, maybe a set of bells. And the leader said, the president is, co is coming, ruffles and flourishes. And I had never heard of this. Hmm. And I looked over to the trumpet player. I said, what does he mean? And he sort of panicked. He said, you don't know? <laughs> No, I don't. He said, look, when he looks at you and points to you, start rolling on that snare drum and smile. And I did. <laughs> and I, but it, da, da, and a big, and I made it through, man. That was my first experience in the White House. I, that is I, really cool. That spot is still on the seat I was sitting on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know and, and like you uh say that, that 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 you perform at the white house and of course like all, all the special bands in dc perform at the white house today the army band the old guard fife and drum corps and the marine band all played for the arrival ceremony for the uh premiere of india um and the marine band's actually out there right now as well um a couple of my friends were sending me pictures um but the 
Um, the, the thing about the Marine band playing at the white house is you guys play a lot at the white house, you know, for, for other special bands, you might be talking about, you know, once every couple of months or something like that, but you guys are there probably five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times a month, um, playing these small little, little concerts and, um, and, um, chamber music and, and like, I mean, you're there all the time, right? Yeah, depending on who the president is and how much they want the band. And, and as you know, you know, in the service band, you get the call at five in the morning, you're there at 7 a.m. Wow. Right? There's no saying we didn't book you or enough time. Um, so there, it, we got, I was there during Reagan's second term, and there were lots of last minute requests. And they used to give us a little thing that you could put on your, uh, in your car, you put it up in the front over the steering wheel. It said, United States Marine Band on duty at the White House, so that when we couldn't find a place to park, we could put that up there and be okay. So I carried that with me everywhere, and sometimes when I went to the movies, I would put it up <laughs> <laughs> to my to the fullest. It's I, like a I, handicap <laughs> sticker. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. So you know, speaking of of the Marine Band and uh, its its iconic nature, famously directed by John Philip Sousa. He was the uh, director of the band for 12 years. Now, both of you as members, did you ever pick up, and maybe there's none, maybe there's some, maybe there's a lot, did you ever pick up on any lore, any rumors, any inside knowledge or interesting facts about John Philip Sousa's time with the Marine Band? Anything? Not so much directly from Sousa, but there were definitely traditions passed down, especially mm -hmm. in the Russian section. You know, this is the way we interpret the roles. We're you know, accent the uh, attack, not the release. Um, and that's changed quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. But always just passed down one drummer to one drummer, yeah. or accents in marches where each leader had their own preference. I learned more about the Sousa style from Keith Bryan, who used to be the band director at Yale, and ran the new Sousa band, which is a recreation of John Philip Sousa's band. We actually both got a chance to play in that band together in China on a tour, which was fun. Uh, Keith got most of his information from Dan Hinger, who's in the Navy band, about Sousa style or traditional style. Uh, and he had, I don't know if any of you ever played for Keith, but he has very particular, um, specific things he wants the percussionists to do. Um, so I, I learned more about it from Keith, and Keith had done scholarly research, so I kind of picked up on that end of things. I did learn recently um, that Sousa's band played in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, on a number of occasions. One of those occasions, the band tour manager forgot to book hotels. <laughs> the band had to sleep outside on the street or find their own accommodations. So the band at the next matinee, the next day, a bunch of them went on strike. And Sousa came out to play, and they had like 15 members of his band 
and he fired everybody the next day. Oh, <laughs> ooh, nice. I learned that just like last a couple months ago. I didn't come through the military at all. That's cool. That's crazy. That's a crazy story. You were closer to Sousa's era than I was. I'm not sure what the traditions were in the 50s. Well, we, we had a leader by the name of Albert Schoper, who is, uh, uh, he was an Eastman grantor, but he was a violinist. He was a disciplinarian, unrightfully so, because he was not that talented himself to tell us a lot of the things that he wanted us to do. Uh, and one of the reasons that, that I didn't stay in the Marine Band more than uh, four years was because I witnessed in rehearsals at times when the leader, Albert Chopper in this case, was angry at, at, the, at that section, uh, an individual and so on. And I saw men in their late 30s and, and let's say early 30s through 30s cry in rehearsals. And I thought, that's not for me. I, I don't want to stay for 20 years. But the uh, the ones I was speaking of were Ali Zinsmeister and Charlie Owen was in the band. They were a, a team. That was The band then was, Saddleman was his name. And I think the band was uh, more compatible. But the Chopper... I, I think, and as you guys probably know, sometimes someone who doesn't necessarily have the, the basic in, basic instinct to be good at what they're doing, they can be a very angry person and take it out on others. And I think that's what I saw. And uh, I, I was a, a Charlie Owen, the name that you guys probably know, and uh, he toured with the band as marimba soloist, and then I came along and played marimba soloist. J.R. comes along, he's marimba soloist, because the theory of that band is that every member is a soloist at some time. So the leader could say, hey, Beck, you're next. Next week, you're going to play a solo. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I would, uh, I had a lot of them and ready to go. Had a case full of them. There were stories of Charlie Owen and Ali Zinspeister practicing keyboard solos or duets on the train on tour. <laughs> baggage car, set up the instrument, and practice between cities. You know, right? It, it uh, seems like 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 Ali Zinspeister is uh, he he specifically is is kind of a um, kind of one of those lore figures in in, in the band. Um, a few years ago, we we built a, a drum. Um, for the Marine Band, it, um, not a ceremonial drum, but, but more of a concert um, field snare. And uh, we, we put the, the photo of Ali Zinmeister. We actually did a tintype um, of his original band um, photo uh, that's as a plaque on the side of the drum. And his family came out. Um, and, but, but yeah, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of respect for, for Ali specifically. I'm sure, I'm sure all the other guys as well. Um, but, I mean, Ali seems to have have his own kind of uh, following, and a lot of guys um, hung out with him and, and were able to um, kind of capture some of that. That um, the stories that he had apparently were were pretty pretty epic. <laughs> well, yeah. You no, know, I, I I I I'm really very pleased to be 
the person that took mm -hmm. Ollie's place in the Marine Band. And Ollie was very, Bill Street, my teacher, who was also Ollie's teacher, was so pleased that Ollie was in the Marine Band, his first student at the school, that when I got into the band and then became the teacher at the Eastman School, Ollie gave me the drum that JR is holding here. And this drum moved the music at the Eastman Theater in 1922. This was the drum that played the Star Spangled Banner, the first sounds heard in Eastman School. So now I have this lintage here, this drum. It's a lady, I think it has 16 snares. Yeah, it's a single tension. Mm. So it's uh, beautiful. But it's a beautiful drum. And the fact that I have it, I suppose the next person to hold this drum is the one who's holding it now. Right, for sure. Yeah. Unless me. he screws up this interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's beautiful. And that's a great story. And that's uh that's quite a keepsake. Can we um, hear it? Can you can you tap on a little bit? I'd love to hear that. A little humid out today. <laughs> Finger tapping. Beautiful. There totally you go. Sorted the zoom, right? Yeah, 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 a little bit, but that's yeah, okay. A bit. It's it's a it's a beautiful drum, and and is it that is. is that fourteen inches or thirteen? It, it, it looks like fifteen by eight. Fifteen maybe. by eight. Oh, wow. it's a fifteen inch. Yeah, beautiful. It's beautiful. Pigeon, uh, gut snares, and the whole works. Capskin head. Yeah, yeah. It's a lady. It's an old lady drum. Yeah. You had asked a question about Sousa. There are a lot of Sousa tour memorabilia in the Marine Band Library, including some old horseman drums. Um, so it, there wasn't a really direct link about Sousa did it this way, but you could go down and see the stuff that Sousa's band played on when mm -hmm. he was there. And that was pretty cool. Those horseman drums go back. I mean, where where are they from? Is that a Boston company, Henry Horseman, or is it Philadelphia? Philadelphia. That's uh, yeah, yeah. I think it was it was Philadelphia, mid eighteen hundreds or so. Yeah, um, that, that's really cool. Jr. So, do you have do you have a collection, or do you you know together have a pretty good collection of drums? I'm a drum collector myself. I've got quite, but I I collect bass drums because that's my thing. Uh, and not snares, but tell us a little bit about your collection, the drum that's behind you. Uh, we know about the drum that we just looked at. Are there other drums in your collection that are of interest and that you love? Yeah, I, I mean, I started collecting stuff when I was in D.C. I was in the band for four years, but stayed in the area another nine freelancing. Mm -hmm. Ted's Music in Baltimore, right across the street from Peabody, was a great spot in fact, I got a horseman shell out of Ted's on the fourth floor. I was digging around um, 
So I started collecting older instruments just to kind of save them. <laughs> Some sure. Eo King drums. Um, little by little, as JB has thinned out his herd here, it's all migrated south to North Carolina. With <laughs> Um, so I have a lot of Bill Street stuff, some theater effects that he used in the 1920s in Eastman Theater. Um, I have the the mate to this Reamer drum behind us, mm -hmm. JB's first Radio King drum set. It has his JB logo on the front. Oh, wow. man. And it's several rope drums that he's collected over the years. That's great. Uh, now that I'm retired from full-time studio teaching, I have a chance to actually clean these things up and put them back in working order. Right. I have drums that never have seen anything but dust cloth since I picked them up in the 80s that now I'm going to, you know, fix up. Yeah. yeah, and they do need to be played. You know, they they need to be played. It's like a it's like a car. If, if it sits in the driveway too long, you know, shit starts to rust and, you know, and then it doesn't work anymore. You know, these things really need to be played. So I... I purchase a Gladstone snare drum from one of Billy's students whose brother was an oboist in the Marine Band before mm -hmm. my, um, but he was selling his brother's drums and somebody turned him on to me and said, you know, John collects stuff, he might be interested. So I picked up the concert drum, the eight inch drum and Aubrey Adams, who was in the Air Force Band, got the dance drum size. Um, that was mid eighties, I think we bought those. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's probably my most valuable drum. Yeah. It sounds like a million bucks. I've never done a thing to it other than, you know, tighten up the snares a little. Yeah. Now, yeah, I, we, I've heard a lot about the Gladstone drums. I mean, what specifically made them so special? Was it just that, that they, that they were very easily, um, you know, to keep in tune or, you know, held together? The tuning mechanism obviously was unique. Billy had this three-way tuning lug, so you could you never had to take this drum off the stand to tune the top head, the bottom head, or both heads simultaneously. Um, I I think he just had a great ear and developed this drum. It was the right depth and the right thickness of gut. Um, I've never played a drum that sounded better louder. Then. Yeah, uh, Aubrey actually brought the uh, the other drum that you mentioned. Uh, that was at, at my shop for some repairs um, for a while and some new heads, stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, they're, they're they're pretty amazing. Like that that drum key that that's on the side of the of the Gladstones that can adjust it, it can adjust the bottom head from the top. It can adjust the top head from the top, and it can adjust both heads at the same time from the top depending on which um, which wrench you're using from that key. They're, they're really pretty pretty remarkable. And the amount of art that he put into it, I, I can appreciate that. The, uh, um, the way the strainer is is made, it's almost like more like a sculpture than, uh, than a lot of um, the more utilitarian kind of um, uh, strainers and whatnot from that time period. Really cool. I mean, having pulled Aubrey's drum apart, do you think, it's the thickness of the shell, the wood, or just just the artistic nature of how cool the mechanics are that make the drum. So, I mean, I I think that that as a concert drum, uh, I don't play concert concert snare. Um, I do work with drums all day, every day, though. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a, it was a ply shell. It's not a solid shell. I, I had thought that it was a solid shell. 
Um, uh, there were about 35 cracks in the, in that drum, just in the veneers, um, that, that we were repairing for, for Aubrey. Um, I think that there's, there's a, the snare beds are nice. There's a lot of just, there's a lot of attention, um, paid to, to the little, the little things on the drum, but I'm not sure if it would hold up to a, to a, um, Pearl Philharmonic as far as pure sound quality these days, you know? Um, so I think it, it, it does have to have a little bit of, uh, um, you know, understanding my, for instance, my molar drum, um, it, it doesn't sound, um, as good as some other drums that, that, that I've played that are a little bit more, more modern, you know, but the, the construction techniques are, are fascinating and it's a beautiful instrument. I love the instrument. And I think that it's probably very similar, um, with things like the Gladstone snares. There were three of those drums that he made for the Marine band that were there when JB was playing. So I think you mm -hmm. use that drum as the concert drum, right? Uh, well, I've played all, all those drums. Yes. It, uh, you know, what, what makes a good sounding snare drum? It, it's the sound, it's the feel, and it's the ease of playing. I think those things are what makes a drum feel like the Gladstone drum. You played on it and you think, wow, this really feels nice. And it's, mm -hmm. And a lot of drums you could play on you know, thousands of drums, and they all make the same sound: boom, 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 da -dum, da -dum, whatever. And, but every now and then you get a drum that just turns you on. That's like violins, like any instrument. I think has the same potential to do what a good drum does: turn you on and make you want to play better. Well, right, and and I I definitely agree with that. You know, I mean, there's something more special than um, you've probably, probably seen the videos of people comparing a $700 guitar to a million dollar guitar. And okay. Can you actually hear the difference? Uh, some, I'm sure there are people that, that can, and some people that cannot, but there's more to an instrument than that because you are, it is a part of, of your art form, you know, and how you feel about the instrument also kind of affects how you're playing it. So if you're if you enjoy playing that drum, you're probably going to play a little bit better than um, if you're just playing on a you know a drum that's that's mass produced or something like that. So I, I, I think that I, that certainly plays into it. I also love having a drum that's my own and putting it away for five or six years and never touching it, and then taking it out and rediscovering it again and realizing that that drum was really a part of my personality. It was, it was a part of who I was at that time. And it, it, it brings back a lot of memories, a lot of, a lot of things that are inside of your hands, but also in, you know, in your, your, your memories. Um, so I, I think that's, that's also something that has to do with it. How much the drum, you become the, the instrument that you're playing and, and vice versa. It's sort of, you sort of grow with it. Yeah. Good point. And like, so, uh, Go two. go right ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, you play on on, on a, any instrument that we have in the percussion. You pick it up, you play it, and right away, it's something that you want to stay with. You want to play it again and again, and where where it's made, how it's made, so it doesn't really make any difference. But certain people like the Gladstone drum. He knew how to put a drum together that would do what I just explained, what it would do for you. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So we have uh, we have quite a few 
uh, people in the Fife and Drum community that listen to this podcast, can you tell us um, what your experience have has been with, uh, you know, the ancient, maybe northeastern style of fife and drum? Have you guys been to a muster? Have you have you experienced, you know, a lot of the? I, I mean, I see a rope tension drum right over your shoulders. So I know you have it. Can can you tell us what your experiences or your thoughts are of, you know, uh, American ancient fife and drum and, and what you think about it and whether you enjoy it or what you do enjoy about it or what you don't? You've been a member of the company of fifers and drummers. You've, well, you've I, had those I, magazines I, for years, so you have history. Oh, the ancient times. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the ancient times. Yeah. You know, I... I, I really like rudimental drumming. The, the, the things that, that it plays, the different things that, that Wilcoxon's done, and, and all, a lot of composers. Uh, why do I like it? It's because it feels right. It means something. I, in the Marine Band, there's a tra- tradition that uh, roast beef is played before the uh, officer's mess, I think. I don't know if it's still doing, but when I was in They'd send a, dr- a drummer in to play the, the roast beef uh, rather than, than uh, take a bell and go ding, 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 dinner's ready. You had a drummer go in and play roast beef. So I think there's a tradition, tradition there. And when there is a tradition to something, I think it means a little more than just a bunch of notes put together. If you know why these notes are put together. And I'm a real fan of... Uh, the uh, Basel drumming. I I spent a lot of time in in uh, in Basel, and uh, I have. Uh, it's just why do I like rudimental drumming? I don't know. I like concert drumming. I just like drumming. I like the way it feels. And I, the, what disappointed me sometimes in my history of percussion class when I had a bunch of these young students sitting around a table, we were talking, and and I would say. How many of you have gone through the rudiments? And surprisingly, a lot of them were great marimba players, great cymbal players, great timpani players, but they didn't know much about rudimental drumming or why rudimental drumming was ever done. It has a tradition, certainly through the army or military life. There's a real tradition with Rudimental drumming, I like it. It, it was something I grew up with, and uh, I not necessarily. Uh, I'm a great, not a rudimental drummer, but I like it. I spent time with other things, but I really like rudimental drumming. I came into the world you know, through the Marine bands. Um, we played Zoisman drums at that point, um, and. Being the youngest guy in the section, I always played bass drum or cymbals. I very rarely played snare drum, but cadence was the first part of Downfall of Paris that they you know, looped. Um, when PASIC was in DC in 1986, we did a massed Downfall of Paris three camps with members of all the service bands at the Kennedy Center. And I didn't know three camps by memory. So I positioned myself at the far end and taped the music onto the back of the speaker. So I had a reference point. Yep. Um, I was just, I just really didn't have an awareness of the history, but I appreciated the history. So I, I 
ordered these two drums when I got out of the band. And my first visit to DRAM was just mind-blowing, as I'm sure it is for every wood metal drummer who doesn't grow up doing fife and drums. Um, I was there to document for PAS, um, their traditional ancient style playing. And I didn't really have an appreciation for how many different styles and unique characters each core would have um, until I started reviewing all these videos. And part of this documentary was video recording all the five service bands, their traditional marching funeral cadences. And what disappointed me was how little most of the service bands cared about the ancient style and carrying on that tradition. Um, you know, I'd have them play cadences and sticking was a free for all. It was kind of mushed, sort of a double bounce, maybe triples, uh, depending on who was playing. It was like, yeah, we, we don't, we use single-headed tom-toms in the funerals. They're easier to carry. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was, to me, really disappointing having been drawn into the history, how little of that was being carried on you know, service-wide, but how excited I was to see the rich style in New England drumming from video recording, I don't know if there were maybe a hundred fife and drum cores I recorded when I visited DRAM. Um, So that was really neat for me to kind of come into it from the back door and really develop an appreciation for, you know, the language each town has in New England. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that was going to be one of my questions, and I was waiting for a, a time to bring that up. Um, for, for those of you that, that do not know, uh, JR uh, helped with the Rhythm Discovery Center out in Indianapolis, and he compiled recordings of a handful of Fife and Drum Corps, and I think he did a fantastic job of, of sampling the differences between those different groups. I think Grand Republic is represented on there, um, Connecticut Patriots, Ancient Mariners, um, Moodus. Uh, also, the the whole range is there, and and there there are touch screens that you can go and you can press buttons and listen to these different drum corps, and you can hear those different styles. So, um, I, I don't know if I've had a chance to tell you that it's 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 really fantastic, and it's an incredible incredible thing that you did there. It, it was really rewarding to work on. Um, I can't take credit for the title, "No Drummers, No Direction." A history of military drumming. That was Jeff Hartso, the executive director at the time, yep. came up with the title. Um, but we wanted to give people an appreciation of how drums function in the military and how they continue to be historically not recreated, but the evolution of the drumming today, uh, mm-hmm. most of New England. Yeah, that's it was really fantastic. Cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. You know, it's funny because JB, you actually. You kind of touched on this at the very beginning of this of this discussion when you were when you were talking about when you were talking about the 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 difference between like a a kit drummer and someone who drums in a band and it's not about hey I play faster than you or I play or I play snazzier than you I mean when you are in a rudimental drumming uh section your job is to play as well as you can individually together. You know, that's really your job when it comes down to it. And that's what, that's what, what sectional rudimental drumming, I mean, to me is all about, you know, how can we individually be as good as we can be and almost 
almost have this train come off the tracks, but all play together, you know, and and it's and we have talked about it on this podcast. We've talked about it individually. And it's and it's not it's not just how well you're playing. It's it's the emotion and and the feeling and all of the stuff that's going on while still holding it together just by this much, you know, and that's the beauty of that's the beauty of of rudimental drumming, you know, in a sectional uh, type of atmosphere. And you hit on it earlier in this discussion, which I thought was cool that we kind of came back around to it. So really um, great to play music with others for others. That's yeah. what it's all about. You just said to play together. And it's fun for the players playing together. And then it's also great for those listening because it's a camaraderie is what it it amounts to. And it's good. You hit it right on the nail. That's very good. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, like the the, the rudiments really, I mean, John... excuse me uh jr <laughs> we, we we've had this conversation before but they really are um the rudiments are really syllables of a language you know and um and i think that that the the interesting thing about the the fife and drum community and and the the traditional stuff is that it is it is a folk tradition is it, you know there are a lot of people that that don't even read music um because they they learned it as they learn a language um, and that's the same in Basel. I think it's a little bit different now. Most people are, are, um, learning music as part of their, their, um, their knowledge base, but, tr- you know, traditionally it, it wasn't necessary for you to, to be able to read, um, the math of music to be able to, to speak the language, which I think is kind of interesting. I was at a global arts conference a couple of years ago at Ohio University and the National Dance Company of Ghana was there. And one of the dancers was asked about learning and learning from a master teacher. And he said, in my culture, the village is my teacher. Mm. We all learn from each other because music making is community. It's Mm. dancing, drumming and singing all year. And my exposure to the muster in deep river felt very much like that it was a community where you know the younger players are learning just because this is what the family does and we get together on weekends and we all play together we play for the enjoyment of playing not for bread not because it's a gig it's just we love being in this creative space together and the energy of all those people playing all the tunes that everybody knows together yeah no different than West African drumming where the village gets together and everybody plays just for your joy of playing. Right. Well, you know, and, and that's, that's, it's been such a cool thing, especially, you know, worldwide now um, that you, you can travel and with, um, you know, groups like the Society of International Rudimental Drummers and, um, and many different organizations. But, you know, if you, you get a couple rudimental drummers together and we can figure out how to play something together. You know, it's, it's, uh, we don't need a, a sheet of music. We, we can play, play different things. And, and that's been, been very re- rewarding for, for me personally. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the community of, of that, that language of, of drumming has been just, you know, a lot of fun over the years. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for, uh, for, for coming on and chatting with us a little bit here. Um, 
we're we're going to wrap this up for now. But um, I mean, this is like we we've only scratched the the tip of the iceberg here with with the amount of uh, stories and knowledge that they, that you guys have. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for for taking the time and, and having you both together. Uh, yeah. which I know is, 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 is not exactly a rare thing, but it's, uh, you know, um, being able to track you guys down was, uh, was, uh, pretty special for us to have you guys on. You know, actually it is, it is fairly rare. Cause I was thinking about this earlier and we have had, we have had on this podcast, we've been doing this for three years now and we've had quite a few guests and we have had, uh, parents of renowned drummers. We have had children of renowned drummers, but I don't think we've ever had a parent and a child on together, both being renowned drummers. And it's fascinating to get your dueling perspectives on drumming um, generationally. It's really cool. And thank you so much for being here. It's great. Oh, it's always a pleasure for me to be with him. With my <laughs> When we play together, it's a great feeling. Awesome. That's so good. Saved our family who's upstairs from not having to listen to us talk shop. <laughs> right, right. Just able to talk drums with you. <laughs> well, and, I, and I definitely want to ask more questions about the, the Sousa, you know, the rudimental side at some point. I'd, I'd like to hear more about some of the interpretations and perhaps how they've changed over the years because um, I, I think that's a whole other episode we could do. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, gentlemen. set is really a chorus. We have soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. Soprano, alto, tenor, bass. That rhythm can be used in many drum solos. So when you're playing the drums, keep the melody in mind. It's very important, just don't play a lot of noise. And when you want articulation on timpani, you use the fast lift is, that is from the wrist to the end of the mallet. Da 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 da. So the three lifts, slow, medium, and fast, 
will give you quality of sound.
If you've liked this podcast and would like to support the Bottom of the Glass, go to patreon.com backslash bottom of the glass podcast to donate or click on the Patreon link on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And thank you. Program produced by Michael Blancaflor. Edited by Brendan Mason. Hosted by Brendan Mason, Dave Loyal, and Brian Watkinson. Podcast music was created by Michael Blancaflor. Logo was done by Andrew Ruddle.